Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in crime and punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us Rusty Reno. The boss is joining us for a half an hour to discuss uh, a little something he has in the magazine this month. It's in the public square, uh, a reference to a book. We focus on books here. Let's go back to an old book that you, Rusty, uh, discuss. And actually, maybe I should like generally, you do like to go back. You, ha- you have in the public square in the past, you've gone back to books 50, 60 years old. W- what are you trying to do there, just generally speaking? Well, I think that we need to, we're facing it um a time of change. I, I think we all feel uh, the earthquake underneath our feet, politically, culturally, religiously. And so it's, I think it's important to go back and draw upon some of the best thinkers in our tradition to try to orient ourselves with respect to the challenges that we face today. And, and that means, you know, looking back some of these 20th century figures who underwent their own period of trauma and transformation living through the 1930s and 40s, as did Eric Vogelin, who's the topic of of that column this, this month in, in the magazine. And I, I think that whether we could go back to Russell Kirk or Richard Weaver, I'm going to hope to write on him at some point in the next few months, Richard Weaver, but also key theological figures, Hans Urs von Balthasar, Karl Barth, there's a new biography of him out. I'd like to revisit his insights. Christopher Lash, Philip Reef. Uh, there really are some figures that we can really learn from and we can escape from the curse of presentism. I think this is one of the things, right, that distinguishes progressives from conservatives. Uh, progressives are always looking at the future, and the past is always at least some degree uh, mixed with error. And one of the places where I notice this is in, in the academy, in the humanities, I noticed that, that the books that we were reading in graduate school in the 1980s, and we were going back to the 70s and 60s and 50s, even back to the 20s and 30s sometime, just as part of our formation. But one of the things I've noticed is as progressivism has really advanced, as the left-wing thinking ha- has taken over the humanities, if you ask graduate students in the humanities about books that were written in the 60s and 70s, those books that we took as more or less for graduate students, at least canonical, those are gone. And I think that's a terrible loss because of books that you mentioned, Richard Weaver and, and others. This is a resource, right? This is a way to come to terms with the, the present. And so the, 
the recovery, I think people should people should take as really a model. I'm not just referring this. You need to go back and read these things as well. Maybe, maybe Rusty. Maybe we should issue a a, a canon, a, a canon <laughs> of works. Not not the very top classics in in of Western civilization, but like the 20th century. You know, 30 books that are clarifying, that are helpful. Are you going to do this, Rusty? No, that's a great idea. You know, the New York <laughs> Review of Books provides a great service by putting back into print what I would call minor classics. You know, yeah. the, you know, the classic classics are readily available, but there are often books that are minor classics. I think of one by Certelange. He was a French Dominican who wrote a book called On the Intellectual Life that is a minor classic published in around 1920. I think anybody who goes to do a graduate degree in the humanities should read Sertelange on the intellectual life. I haven't. You know, so that's your point, Mark, yeah. and I think that's a good one, which is some of the minor classics, J. Gresham Machen's Liberalism or Christianity is a great book from the 1920s and really lays out what the theological challenge of modernity is and how uh, Christian orthodoxy has to meet it without compromise. Uh, it's, a, it's another one of these fine books. In fact, if we, we could make a rule that it, 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 uh, we, it can't be too long. <laughs> yes. Both of those books are very manageable in length. I, I think we should, you know, maybe on the web we will we'll, we'll work up. So I, I think we should do something like that. But if, if we get to your, your column, I mean, again, you draw on you go back to books for for assistance right because as you say you know the ground the ground is shaky all the way down to the roots that's what radicalism wants to do right to to shake things up and we've got to we've got to go back to places that give us a, a firmer ground on things and you know i was wondering when, when i looked at your column there on Voglin, uh, he talks about ancient Rome. And do, do you think we're in a condition of late Rome, Roman decadence, uh, the barbarians are coming? Well, don't forget that the decline of the Roman Empire took 400 years. So <laughs> it, it, I mean, most people consider the end of the Republic as when Caesar crosses the Rubicon and, and it's kind of all downhill from there. But uh, or people mark the turning point in various ways, but it's still it's a long ride down. So I think we ought to hesitate in in drawing these these comparisons. But for you know for Foglin, he was a he was a a big think guy, and part of the excitement of reading Eric Foglin is that he he thinks about civic life, public life, political life from what I would call kind of metaphysical perspective. And his basic theory in The New Science of Politics, which is his most widely read book, his basic theory is that politics is driven by the necessity of representation. And he doesn't mean elections and things like that, but rather that civic life has to represent uh, for us an ideal, uh, a vision of, of the world. He sees that kind of different historical moments that it begins with this cosmological template. You know, the 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 Pharaoh is the God on earth and 
uh, imposes order on society just as the 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 high god the deity imposes order on creation and so civic life mirrors the mirrors the cosmological order and and he does serve some value of representation he's representing the cosmological order okay and 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 insofar as the society as a whole is engaged by that vision of reality they are satisfied they are affirm they affirm that representation and then for Foglin, he's very influenced by Carl Jaspers and others who talk about the so-called axial age, which is this turn to the, the transcendence is the measure of the soul. And so society has to represent uh, human truths, not these cosmological truths. He calls this the anthropological imperative. And then and sort of natural law, natural right is a, is a Western European language to talk about that that kind of uh, understanding of society. But he thinks Christianity is what really transformed the politics of the West. Because what it did is it did a kind of double movement. It democratized the ideal of ideals of the soul by, you know, for Aristotle, only the highborn can pursue excellence, uh, excellences of the soul, life of virtue. But for Christianity, because of God's grace, it's accessible to everyone. So it democratizes that. And but more importantly for him, it takes the cosmological how politics does not represent heaven on earth because that's the church's job. The church is the is the heavenly community represented in in the affairs of men. And so this frees up poli- uh, politics from the need this kind of need to to serve as a a tool for creating heaven on earth. But he thinks that the prevailing characteristic of modernity is the redivinization of politics. And what happens is, is that instead of the heaven above, it's the heaven in the future, so to speak. It's the utopia in the future that serves as the template. And we have to reconstruct society in order to represent the future. So the arc of, this arc of history language that we hear about being on the side of history, if you think about that, that's often used now. Yes. And that, that is a, what he calls the modern Gnostic uh, uh, view of politics. Whereas I would think Gnostic is kind of a word that it's not, we don't use in everyday conversation. Instead, I would call it that modern politics is idealistic. So, but the idea is not above, so to speak, in the way that it is for Plato, but it's in the future. And this is a particularly dangerous kind of idealism because it creates the illusion that we can really kind of create it here now because the future is the future is temporal, it's earthly, as opposed to heaven above, which is you kind of go, okay, well, heaven is above and, and we're below, so we, we have to wait. But if it's in the future, it's coming. Would Vogelin say that, that there's, there's, there's something of a causal relation in that there is a human impulse toward that cosmological representation. And if people don't get it in one place, they will find it in another place. That's well said. Uh, Fogelin, uh, he means St. Augustine, our heart is restless, said St. Augustine, until it finds its rest in thee. And so this notion that the human soul seeks transcendence, this is back to this idea of representation, that we seek 
we seek to conform our lives to something higher, something greater. And if we're denied a fitting expression of transcendence, we will, in fact, throw ourselves in loyalty to false and perverted views of transcendence. And for Foglin, the, the real perversion of the modern era is to immunitize what he says, the eschaton. So in other words, the eschaton is the sort of the final, the last day, the last judgment when, when things are all going to be made right. And so what it is, it immunitized meaning saying we can do that. We, you and I, if we form the right revolutionary cell, can you know, heighten the contradictions and precipitate the revolution that will usher in the end of history. And if you think about it, it's, that's of course a Marxist way of talking. But <laughs> what we, but there are also, so you know, there are also right-wing versions of this. You know, if we just kind of libertarianism can have a utopian aspect to it. If we just deregulate enough, if we just there's a kind of withering away of the state idea in someone like Milton Friedman. That I think that the market, if we if we can finally clear away the impediments to pure market relations, then we'll be able to live in a society with prosperity and peace. Let me come back to the idea of representation for a moment, because that seems to be acute at the present time. These populist revolts, I mean, even the Tea Party a dozen years ago and or 10 years ago and and then the Trump election, a lot of that was about there's a political class. They are the elite. They're not representing us. And it wasn't just, from what I could tell, it wasn't just a political representation. It was a more metaphysical kind of, they're not embodying anything that we, that we feel deeply, right? That we care. This isn't just about money and interests and, 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 you know, unions or labor, whatever. This, this is something, uh, Again, it's something more human, more deep about the elite up there, the eminences. They run, they run Silicon Valley. They run the universe, the wealthy universities. They run Washington, D.C. They run the corporations, and they're just so different from us. Do you, is there a connection? Yes. You know, for, you know, as I say, Fogelman in the New Science of Politics, presents us in a very broad sweep of Western history. But I think the basic insight about representation that you just articulated is, is in accords with, with Fogland's thinking. In other words, we want, we want people to represent our interests, but we also want people, we want our leaders to represent, if you will, our dreams, our hopes, our aspirations, our vision of the future, our, our sense of of the reality of that's most important in life. And so if you look at, if you look at multiculturalism, for instance, it, it is a kind of utopian idea that if we, can just, if we can just sort of downplay the dominant culture enough and empower marginal cultures, then we'll have a, we'll have a society where everybody fits in. Nobody's an outsider. And this is a kind of so we want our politics to represent that as for if you're a certain kind of progressive. But if you're, you know, but the others, others have a, a more tragic view of life, let's say. And so what's most important is strong anchors. And so they want their political leaders to represent our, you know, most enduring traditions, our shared memories. 
So some people, their goal is a future that's more open and fluid. Others is they want a, a society that's more anchored and solid. And, and you know, I, I, I agree with you, Mark. I think that that people vote their interests. Of course they vote their interests, but they also vote their dreams or what I would call their metaphysical dreams. You turn in your second section. The first section is called Gnostic Politics. The second section of the public square is The Way of Love. What is, what is the turn here? If you have a politics that is ideologically supercharged, the temptation is to say, well, the solution is for us to become less engaged, less enamored of our views, more skeptical, uh, more indifferent, if you will. That was actually the classical Hellenistic model, the late Roman model. Stoicism and Epicureanism are both therapies of detachment. Uh, so we just don't overinvest, you know, and that can lower the temperature. Uh, but I think that, you know, back to your Vogel's point that this desire for transcendence is woven into the fabric of our souls. And so the cure of false loves is really a or healthy and noble loves. And if we have a politics that, as I think we do, the woke revolution is, I think, a, a kind of fanaticism, a kind of mania, a kind of idealism run amok, then we have to, the only really, really way to answer it is with these sort of anchoring loves and loyalties to things that are noble and, and, and fitting for human, for human life. You know, yeah, the, the term ease up, you know, lighten up, uh, no strong gods. You can have some weak gods, mild gods, but not, not, not strong. And if you're going to have any strong gods, you just keep it private, okay? What Vogelin emphasizes here is gratitude and uh, as, a, as a, you know, a love of the world as it is, not as it might be. And I think that there's, that's actually quite profound and important. And many people, I, I observe that Roger Scruton saw the, that a humane life is anchored in gratitude and wonder. Uh, which are you have to have both. You're not going to be struck with the with the kind of joyful wonder of of reality unless you first affirm it. Um, and I think one of the things I find so tiresome about the woke revolution is it's just hectoring moralism that seems to have no in, an inability to savor the joys of of uh, the small and also significant joys of life as it is. Well, Rusty, what is the strong God of the woke revolution? The future. I mean, this is what I think Fogelin really helps us see. The future. In other words, you know, who, what are we loyal to? I mean, you think about it. Like I said, both Obama and Hillary Clinton both spoke about being on the side of history. And so what are you loyal to? You're loyal to the future. And, but the problem with the future is that, look, God may or may not exist. You know, the na uh, natural law may or may not exist. But the future, by definition, does not exist. And so the, one, of the, one of the, I think, Fogel helped me see this, and that's why going back to Fogel was, was going back to these great books and these interesting texts is so important for us. He helped me see that this is part of the problem, right? A passionate loyalty to something that does not exist is a real invitation to a very perverse and paradoxically self-serving politics. So you, you know, the woke, you know, people say, well, it's just a power play when college students, you know, play the race card or the, 
or the LGBT card or whatever it might be. And I think that's probably true, but it's also idealism at the same time. But notice that the idealism is to something is to the future where everybody will be affirmed as they wish to be affirmed. And that that's a, in the future by definition does not exist. And so it's a kind of weirdly self-inflating idealism. So there, there's a kind of selfless service of the future, but because the future doesn't exist, it can't really actually exercise discipline on our souls and make us genuinely obedient and, and in service, uh, which, is a, which is a humanizing thing to, uh, under any circumstance. It's a humanizing thing to be loyal and be in service of, of something greater than oneself. You mentioned the phrase, uh, well, well, ab- about the, the future. Uh, I think it's, it has, I have heard criticisms of, say, the college campus or these activist organizations as, as power-hungry, and that they're ultimately relativists about, about you know, big things. And I, I think that that fails to appreciate the moral fervor of of these of the young activists of the woke they believe and they powerfully believe but like i say the focus is very helpful here they powerfully believe right and there there seems to be ideals here and they they are but you think about it so we're supposed to discriminate in order to end discrimination yes for instance right, right? I mean, what's equity? Equity is discriminating now, so we won't have to discriminate in when the future. And so, so the, you know, in other words, because the loyalty is to to the future, it it can't. We're supposed like, if you're a Blackstone, common law lawyer, you know, you know, a legal theorist. I mean, yes, you have principles, of course, but you're also loyal to the past because the common law. The whole the underlying principle of common law is that the law, as received, has to guide and govern decisions about, uh, that you make today and tomorrow and the, and, and the day after tomorrow. It doesn't mean you have to just repeat the past, but that the past has authority over the future. And that makes sense because there is actually a body of law. You can go study it, and it can you know you can think about it creatively, as you know the rabbinic tradition thinks very creatively about the Talmud. But it's the but it, it exists. But if, if you're loyal to ultimately to principles that are only kind of realized in the future, then this is an invitation to a kind of dreamy politics, a dream world politics that's really unanchored in reality. And I think this is part of what's so frightening about the woke revolution is because you ask, where's it going to end? When you ask yourself this question, where's it going to end? You're basically expressing your concern about a, a politics that's unanchored in reality. In fact, Fogelin says that at the end, that the pro- progressive culture will, in its kind of most pure form, ha- impl- it requires a denial of reality because reality is the sin against the future. The present is an impediment to the future, and it has to be overcome. And so the present is real, so therefore reality has to be overcome. We see this in transgenderism, obviously. The reality of being male and female has to be overcome, denied, repudiated. You use phrase like a denial of reality. You used a phrase earlier, quote, a passionate loyalty to what doesn't exist. Now this is, as you said, it's irrational, it's pathological, and when people are in this bind, they're going to start acting out. And it's going to be a little bit frightening 
right? I mean, this is where the revolutions go, go very, go very bad, go wrong. Well, anything can be justified by the judgment of the future. I mean, I think Vogel doesn't make the connection, but it, there's a connection here between idolatry and a loyalty to the future, because idols also don't exist. In other words, at least what idols claim to refer to don't exist. And so they're empty. And they're, you know, they're, they're, there is a kind of a vacuum into which human perversions will flood. And I think this is what we see with uh, revolutionary politics in all through the modern era, starting with the French Revolution, is that, that the supposed idealism decays into this, this sort of the most perverse will to power. You offer some steps in the end of your section. You say the first thing we must do is, quote, strengthen our connection to reality. So th this is the first, the first point is let us, you know, as Matthew Arnold put it, the first goal of the critic is to see the object as it is, right? Connection to reality. And that's a burden we all share at the present time? I think it's Whitaker Chambers at the beginning of Witness says that he looked at his newborn daughter's ear and he knew at that moment that he could no longer believe in communist materialism. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's the, it's the, again, this is basically, we're back to gratitude and wonder that things as they are, are worthy of our gratitude and, and loyalty. And, you know, again, this doesn't mean that you don't engage in political action to change things. It's just that you have to start with things, with things as they are and try to use what works, in, uh, to take what works and make it work a little bit better. Uh, that's just the most we can hope for. And, and so I, I, I think that part of it is, you know, uh, this is uh, John Sr., you know, a Catholic um, educational theorist who recognized that one of the great problems, and many philosophers have noted this, is that uh, modern men and women are very um, detached from reality. They don't, we don't work with our hands. We don't go to the barn. We're, we're not kids. We don't watch calves being born. Uh, we, don't watch, we don't know where our food comes from. Um, we don't know where dead bodies go. So all the really deep facts of life are hidden from us now. And so I think it's important to, to make sure that you're connected to reality. And I think that that... that, that that can make uh, the voodoo charms of the future less powerful. For all the parents out there, make sure your sons know how to change a tire. How's that? Well, this is Matt Crawford's, I think, insight in Shopcraft is Soulcraft and his new book on why we drive. That a competent, to navigate competently through the world, you have to have a sense of of the texture of reality, both its possibilities and also its limitations. Because, you know, when you uh, crash the motorcycle, the pavement is hard uh, and the road rash is real. And, and that shapes how you, how you drive. And I think that, that carries over into political life and citizenship. If we have a vivid sense of the real, we'll both be aware of what can be encouraged and nurtured as a farmer does with a field, but also we're aware of the fragility of what we have and the punitive nature of reality when it's flaunted and ignored. You quote Vogelin, this, this could be a, a, a note on which we wrap up, philosophy 
springs from a love of being. I think it's uh, a line, maybe in St. Thomas, but or maybe it's just a, a one that 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 where love is, there is the eye. So we only really see the things we want to see, and love is, of course, the engine of wanting, the engine of desire, and so. The more deeply we love something, the more we wish to see and know it as it is. And, and so that's, my, that's why gratitude is so important, because gratitude is, the, is, it, is that sort of general disposition of, of loving acceptance of, of things as they are. And that, that allows us to circle back and say, now, wait a minute, what is, it? What, what is it here? What is going on? What is reality? We live in a loveless age. You and I know from our years teaching that the pedagogy is a pedagogy of critical doubt and repudiation. So much is kind of trashed in humanities, and so little is held up as noble and worthy of our love and loyalty. So as a result, we have an academic culture of know-nothingism uh, rather than one that uh, seeks wisdom. Rusty Reno, thank you for joining us. Great. Thanks, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.